Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. President Biden delivers his first State of the Union with war raging in Europe. Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world. Putin, for his part, did not achieve his objectives quickly. They couldn't execute the plan. It's too ambitious. The West responds with punishing sanctions. It was really Europe, not Biden, that got switched off swift and went after Russia with these onerous economic sanctions. But the real profile of courage has come from Ukrainian President Zelensky. When it was suggested that he should evacuate and leave, the capital said, I need ammunition, not a ride. We'll look at the church in Ukraine. It was just a profound moment to hear the bombs falling as they sang the old hymn, Count Your Many Blessings. We have all this and more. I'm Don Crow with a special edition of our program looking at Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine. Great to be with you, coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. For months now, going back to the spring of 2021, President Putin has been amassing troops near the border of Ukraine. His propaganda machine faithfully put forward the fiction that war was not their aim. President Biden and his administration either bought the lie or simply refused to believe what all the video and all the intelligence made perfectly clear. 200,000 troops on the border of Ukraine were there for one reason and one reason alone, the unprovoked invasion of a sovereign nation. The president was obligated to address the issue in his first State of the Union address. Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated As President Putin unleashed his forces on Ukraine, it was clear that the Russian military was ill-equipped and insufficiently trained, carrying out an invasion that was poorly planned. Kevin McCullough turned to retired General Jack Keane from AM570, The Mission, in New York City. It is important to keep our eye on the actual ball and not on all these peripheral things. You agree with me on that, right? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, one of the interesting things here is... But a number of us are, are somewhat mystified knowing what the capability is of Russian cyber offensive capability. It's very comparable to what the United States has. And we, we are mystified that they have not taken down the power grids in these major cities, water distribution, also the telecommunication system, as well as the Internet. That has certainly assisted uh, with the resistance, but it's also enabled Zelensky and the Ukrainians to get their story out. Yeah. I mean, the international media is broadcasting every minute. What, what's interesting, this is a regime that is so concerned about information operations that they create false narratives to justify what they're doing. So they're very sensitive to it themselves. They understand the impact of it, and they use it all the time. Well, let's delve into this, General, because I think you're hitting on an important point, and that is there's a lot that has not gone the way you and other esteemed military minds around the world thought it was going to go. And I'm just curious, what's your gut tell you about why it hasn't? It was likely in Putin's mind or one of his top generals, they wanted to get this thing done very quickly, in two or three days at most, and so they could avoid 
civilian casualties, avoid international condemnation, get it over with. And I think they just so profoundly miscalculated, one, the uh, underestimating the Ukrainians. And I think Putin has underestimated the Ukrainian people going all the way back to 2014. After all, it is the Ukrainian people that forced Yanukovych out, who was the president of Ukraine, was pro-Russian, the people were opposed to him, and they demonstrated in the streets with hundreds of thousands and ran him out of the country. He fled to Russia. That's what precipitated the annexation of Crimea and the introduction of forces into eastern Ukraine. He thinks he can topple this regime, which he will be able to do. He actually said he had no intentions of occupying the country. That's almost laughable. He'll have 40 million people who will be trying to overthrow you know, his, his new puppet regime, and they will fight until the last Russian soldier is gone, no matter how long it takes. And the fact that he doesn't understand that is extraordinary to me. Well, there's a lot of rumor mill about whether or not Putin is who he used to be mentally. And I'm curious, I'm sure you've heard some of the observations, but as a, from a military perspective, do you see that possibly playing into some of this underestimation and maybe just not being all that connected to the outside world himself? Well, it could be, you know, when it comes to certain aspects of his decision making, underestimating the Ukrainian people, he's blinded by his own passion and hate for it. It could be, but I, I mean, in terms of the military campaign, I think because they wanted to do so quickly, Kevin, Yeah, they came up with a plan that do four axes of advance into the country simultaneously to collapse it quickly, as opposed to just go for the capital city or go for sequentially to other cities first and then go to the capital, which would drag it out. But they couldn't execute the plan. It's too ambitious. It's too complicated. All four axes require their own individual logistics infrastructure to sustain it. They all require their own individual air power to sustain it. And they haven't been able to keep up with all of that. And that's why the Ukrainians obviously slowed them down. But so did their very ambitious plan that was not able to sustain their momentum. Yes, Putin's forces may have been slowed by resistance that was greater than they expected and, of course, by their own ineptitude. But Ukraine is overwhelmingly outmatched and outgunned. The Russian military may well be achieving their objectives, just more slowly and with more innocent lives lost. Here's Brandon Weikert, founder of The Weikert Report, once again with Kevin McCullough. They could not have made the first you know, incursion into Ukraine for this campaign uh, a bigger mess up than they have. And now, in order for them to follow through on this, it looks like they're going to have to get really bloody and deadly. Is that what you're basically saying? So basically, the Russians, you're right, came in thinking it could be a cakewalk, kind of like how the Americans were in 2003 in Iraq. We went in with the light force, kind of thought we could brush over everything and be done with it and get out. And of course, you got sucked into this insurgency for years that drained us. Something similar, I think, is going to happen. The Russians basically went in, thought it would be easy for them, that they'd be welcome as liberators, because everybody in Ukraine are slobs as well, like the Russians. And, of course, that's not what happened. And now the Russians are resorting to their traditional style of warfare, which is slow, plodding, and very bloody and indiscriminate. We saw this in Georgia and 08. We kind of saw it in Crimea. We've seen it, obviously, in the Second World War. We've seen it in Hungary in 1953 when the Soviets went in and suppressed the revolution there. So this is the traditional Russian way, slow, lumbering, plodding, very bloody, 
very long, doesn't end quickly, but when it does end, a lot of people are going to be dead. Money is drying up, and it's drying up fast. How do they sustain something long-term if this does turn into a two- or three-month effort? Well, Putin's are. This is the nightmare scenario. So right now, the swift sanctions and the sanctions we've been doing in the West to Russia very helpful in the near term for slowing down the Russian advance, but not stopping it. And in fact, now Putin is pivoting, as predicted, as I predicted, he's pivoting hard to China. And China's now doing this big gas deal with Russia, which is going to help to offset some of the losses economically Russia's facing. Ultimately, though, the problem is, once you deprive Russia of the economy uh, by access to SWIFT, the concern is, does Putin get desperate? Because as the money's drying up, People in Russia are going to get very angry, and they might even threaten to overthrow him. So does he give up? Does he give up his big prize of Ukraine, which is sort of the coup de grace of his entire career? I don't think he will. He might start lashing out more. He might start escalating more. This is why that nuclear threat a couple days ago he made against the West, Biden wrote it off. I think that's a mistake. I think if we keep going down this path, and I understand why we did it, and I get that we have to, but we need to be prepared for Putin to start striking hard directly against Western targets outside of Ukraine, maybe not with nukes immediately, but certainly with counter space, attacking our satellites, going after us in cyber, attacking us on the EM spectrum, maybe even with nuclear weapons, if not against us, maybe against uh, Ukrainian targets, uh, you know, as this progresses. Is that in and of itself, if he if he launches cyber attacks against uh, Western uh, democracies, is that an act of war? It should be. Now, traditionally, it hasn't been because we've been afraid to go too far up the escalation ladder because we don't know where it ends. But everybody is rightly surprised how quickly Europe really it was really Europe, not Biden. It was really Germany and Europe that switched off SWIFT and went after uh, Russia with these onerous economic sanctions. So this could be a change also in cyber war, whereas before we didn't have that as an act of war. But now suddenly with what's going on, if Putin tries some big push in the cyber realm, This might get America and the Europeans off their rear end and get them to say, hey, that's an act of war. We're done. The sanctions may well be more severe than many expected, but they may well be too late. The clearest example of courage and character in this dark chapter of European history, the man who has caught the attention of the free world, the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing program. The Russian forces are massive, formidable. We're looking at something like 200,000 land troops, not all of them deployed in Ukraine yet, but the expectation even of most Western military authorities and intelligence services have been that the Ukrainians would be rather quickly crushed and Kiev, the capital city, very quickly captured. That just hasn't happened. Now, in the fog of war, there are many developments that have already taken place we don't know about. But what we do know is that what we are seeing right now is a profile in courage on the part of the Ukrainians. And that starts at the top with the Ukrainian political leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, who, when it was suggested that he should evacuate and leave the capital, said, I need ammunition, not a ride. That is likely to go down as one of the great lines of political and moral courage of our generation. Over the course of the next several days, there will be no doubt a great deal for us to consider from Ukraine. But the main thing we need to know right now is that the fight goes on, that the Ukrainians are demonstrating remarkable courage. 
and that Vladimir Putin has done what, by some accounts, he was trying not to do, which is to unify European and Western resolve. We see this in the fact that the Germans, who've been very reluctant to spend much on their own national security, much less pass weapons on to others, they are sending anti-aircraft missiles to Ukraine, and they are indicating a willingness to increase their own national defense spending, something they've resisted for more than a generation. The Germans, furthermore, are indicating that they may rethink their decision to shut down nuclear power simply because they do not want to make themselves even more dependent when it comes to energy on imports from Russia. These are huge developments, and the new world order that Vladimir Putin has now created has less to do with any collapse of Ukraine and more to do with increasing the strength of the spine of Western democracies. There are many leaders in those Western democracies who could learn a lesson in courage from Zelensky in his statement, I need ammunition, not a ride. Again, just ponder those words and respect them. Coming up, the church in Ukraine. It was just a profound moment to hear the bombs falling as they sang, count your many blessings. When our special edition of the Christian Outlook continues in a moment. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. As Ukraine finds itself besieged by the Russian military, the evangelical church in the war-torn nation has continued to meet, continued to pray for peace, and has continued to lift their voices up in praise. I turn to Elijah Brown, CEO of Baptist World Alliance. I think you'll be encouraged with the picture that emerges of our brothers and sisters in Christ and their faithfulness in the face of war. Would you take us to Ukraine? Uh, First of all, what led you there? What took you there? Where did you go and what did you see? Well, several weeks ago, we hosted here in our office here in the Washington, D.C. area, a delegation of uh, evangelical Ukrainian leaders who were here in Washington, D.C. to raise the alarm about the very real and distinct possibility of war inside of Ukraine. Following that meeting two weeks ago, I decided to travel to Kiev to meet with the Baptist leadership there in Ukraine. Uh, The Baptist community in Ukraine is the largest Protestant group in all of Ukraine, and it's the second largest Baptist community in all of Europe. They've been a very active group, active in providing uh, spiritual support and physical and practical help related to many issues, including this issue of war since 2014. So it was really a a difficult moment, as you can imagine. My family was nervous. I was nervous. Our church was nervous as I flew to Ukraine last week to spend just a few days. The first day there, we were in Sofia, the oldest church in all of Ukraine, almost a thousand years old, meeting together with other Uh, the leaders of other national conventions and churches and unions and faith communities in a time of peace and a time of prayer for peace. And then uh, I spent time with the union leadership as they prayed and prepared for what they hoped uh, would be unnecessary, but unfortunately has proved to be all too necessary, the invasion of Ukraine. I would assume that even gathering as you may have there and others have been in Ukraine, Kiev itself, 
there is a certain amount of risk and danger, and I've seen some video clips, and I know our listeners have as well, of folks still having church, if you will. Talk about staying away from church for COVID. These folks have been right in the middle of it, and they're still meeting for worship. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, that's right. Yesterday, I think about one of the churches out in eastern Ukraine, which is currently under battle. And one of the women's leaders there, we were in conversation with her, and she was describing to us that as they gathered for worship in their church, they could literally hear bombs falling around them and feel the ground rattling as they were worshiping God. And she said it was just a profound moment to hear the bombs falling, to feel the ground rattling as they sang the the old hymn, Count Your Many Blessings. Folks, that's... Go ahead. This lady went on to tell us, This quote, she said, listen, whatever news you may hear or whatever news you may read, we will stay and serve the Lord. That is faith in action in its truest form and a challenge to all of us, folks. Thank God we are not going through that here. It could happen. We know with all the unrest around the world, it could happen anywhere, really, at any moment. But talk, if you would, Elijah, about what they need most from us. Certainly, they need our prayers. We've been encouraging them. I've been encouraging them at our church. But talk about what churches can do now in that regard, but also in practical ways. Well, let's begin with the issue of persecution, if we can, Don, and then we'll we'll turn to the other practical piece. The first issue of persecution is to recognize that there's already a blueprint. There have been occupied territories in eastern Ukraine since 2014, and if what has happened in those occupied territories is a prologue to what could happen should all of Ukraine fall in the area of religious freedom and persecution, it should redouble all of our efforts to press for peace and to pray with passion. Since 2014, there's been tremendous persecution inside of those occupied territories. Among the Baptist churches in one of those occupied territories, the local Baptists were declared to be a terrorist organization. The Baptist hymnal was outlawed as, quote, extremist material, as was the Gospel of John. One of those pastors from those occupied territories told us that the persecution that they've been experiencing inside those occupied territories since 2014 was worse than anything he had lived through as a pastor during the times of USSR communism. So the persecution in the occupied territories is real, it's sustained, it's been systemic, and we hope that it does not become a prologue to what could happen across all of Ukraine should it fall. Jeff Evanson is one of the leaders with a ministry called Elk River House of Prayer. They've been involved with prayer-focused ministry in Russia and Ukraine since 2013. Jeff was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. Jeff, describe the House of Prayer movement. Exactly what is it? How does it work? It's a, a movement that God has been raising up for the last 20 years of you know, 24 by 7 you know, nonstop worship and prayer around the globe. And so you and your wife go in, and you've taught Ukrainians and Russians how this works? Yeah, that's basically what we've been doing, training people on how to, you know, what it is, why God is doing it, 
and, and what it looks like and how they can do it in their own culture. Interesting. So you and your, you and Laura, what was the longest amount of time you spent in either Ukraine or Russia? Our longest stretch was nine months. You know, we started off with two weeks and then six weeks and then three months. And yeah. <laughs> we finally just decided to stay there for you know, a good part of the year. Nice. Just built and built. So then I would say, you know, you're spending that amount of time uh, intimately enough with uh, the countries of, of Russia and or Ukraine. What is it that we need to know? I mean, for for those of us who have not spent considerable time there, and I, I'm sure you're speaking in broad generalizations here, but what is it about the Russians or Ukrainians that are important for us, especially as believers in Jesus, that who they are as people, and of course their their interaction with Christ? Um, well, they're real people, just like you and me. They love their kids, they love their families, they love one another. I, I love the Ukrainian people. I love the Russian people. Mm. The believers that I met, they love Jesus. They, you know, very fervent in many ways. Um, they love strong leadership, and so they look for a strong leadership in church leaders. But they want to know Jesus. They they want to follow him. The believers that we met. Jeff, what about uh, established relationships that you and Laura made with House of Prayer in Russia and Ukraine? Is there any conversation that uh, is going on between you and uh, people that uh, have been part of your ministry, friends that are in Ukraine and Russia right now? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm in touch with a number of people in Ukraine who, who have um, you know, in different parts of the country. You know, the cities we're hearing about, I, I've been to and I, I know people there, and so I've been following them and you know, making sure they're doing okay. Some are fleeing, you know. Okay, you don't have to apologize, yeah. Jeff. I mean, cl- clearly this it, is Jeff. deeply uh, emotional for you because these are people that you know and love. Yeah. Well, I've been making sure that they're doing okay. Um, some are in cities that are they're not affected much at this time. Others, you know, they're, they're listening to bombs every night. I can't imagine. Coming up, Assessing the relative economic strength of Russia. The U.S. economy, the GDP, is about 14 times that of Russia. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily. And it's available to you at no cost. Go to DaybreakInsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's DaybreakInsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. Russia, we all know, is a formidable military power. In spite of all the ineptitudes and logistical problems that have been on full display, Russia maintains a very large army, some 900,000 active personnel and some 2 million in reserve. Just for context, Ukraine's military has approximately 250,000 active duty personnel. And Russia, we know, is a nuclear power. 
But we should not extrapolate from all of this that Russia has a strong economy. Merrill Matthews from the Institute of Policy Innovation explains, from my program here in Washington, D.C. Explain what you mean about uh, an economic powerhouse. No, they really are the mouse that uh, is trying to roar, I guess. When you look at the GDP of Russia, it's about $1.5 trillion. Uh, Now, the U.S., by contrast, is nearly $21 trillion. So the U.S. economy, the GDP, is about 14 times that of Russia. And and just when you break it down to uh, to people there, the GDP per person in Russia is about ten thousand dollars. In the U.S., it's about sixty three thousand dollars. So it just it's a it's a very small economy. In fact, we've got three states: uh, California, Texas, and New York, to have larger economies than the whole Russian economy. Uh, and it's not just us in this case. You've got the European Union that's uh, that's engaging in this. They've got about totally, in total, about 15 trillion. So you put the European Union and the U.S. Uh, economy together, and you've got about $35 trillion in economic power compared to about $1.5 trillion for Russia. And the point is, Russia has got a, they've got a major military. They've been a, a military force for some time, a military threat with nuclear weapons and other things, but they're not a major economic threat. And it's not entirely clear how long Putin can hold on if these economic sanctions go in. Now, we'll, we'll see because the president has not been terribly clear as to what all the economic sanctions will be, but it's not a big economy. And, of course, we know history has taught us all throughout the history of the communist movement and the years of the former Soviet Union that the military power, and as you've already mentioned, is considerable. It's to be reckoned with, but it's always done on the backs of their people. The poverty level has never changed in the right direction for Russia or any of the other countries that have been under its thumb all these years. And this is another case in point that they're doing this at the expense of their own people as well as uh, more danger now to their own people. That's absolutely right. So it's it's a it's uh, a terrible situation, and that has been true for China as well, as you point out. Interestingly, China and Russia were sort of allies uh, because of the communist elements there up until about 1971 when China got to thinking that Russia was getting a little too aggressive and might want to try to uh, come down into China. So that's when... Uh, Mao Zedong reached out to uh, Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon and started that movement. Of course, Mao died in 76, and that brought in Deng Xiaoping in 78 or 9, and, and, and they started moving towards a little more open and free market economy, which, of course, has been changed by President Xi. So uh, China, the, the sort of the three big powers have been China, Russia, and the U.S., and it depends upon who's who feel like who feels like they're getting gored as to which two the other which of the other two are sort of uniting with each other. You have another column yesterday. Note to Biden: the U.S. can't export renewable energy to our energy-deprived allies. Talk about what you're saying in that column, and folks can find it in total at your website. Right. Yeah, that was just just uh, we've got our. Uh, if, builds off a Wall Street Journal uh, editorial heading that said, American gas to Europe's rescue. LNG export terminals are loading tankers with fuel destined for countries threatened by Putin's energy extortion. And some of these countries are going to need to be able to get more natural gas because about 40% of Europe's natural gas comes from uh, Putin. And when he uses that as a political hammer, we may find that some of these uh, gas lines, uh, pipelines, are either 
shut down temporarily, or you may see the prices rise significantly. So we need to be able to get LNG, liquefied natural gas, to our allies over there. And you can't, you really can't ship that from wind turbines and uh, uh, from fo- uh, uh, solar panels. So we need to have that production going on. But Biden, his administration is actually working to hinder pipelines and the production of more oil and natural gas. Where's the logic in this? How do they, are these people totally unhinged in terms of their logic processes in their brains? How can they reason these things this way? You know, I think they must be. It's amazing. I mean, you remember when there was a hacking of a, of the gas pipeline, gas yep. distribution, year, was that a year or so ago? And Biden was around pushing to try to get that for companies to lower their prices and get that thing open so people could get gas. They're concerned right now because of the high gasoline prices. Because one thing, if one thing can kill a, a Democrat's reelection, it's high gasoline prices. Yeah. Coming up. How did we get to this point? If we had literal family in Ukraine, how would we be praying? That's how we should be praying with our spiritual family. Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum. When the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment. Stay with us. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of our program, focusing on the unprovoked aggression of Russian strongman Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. As we watch the disturbing and disheartening situation on the ground in Ukraine grow increasingly bleak for this nation of 43 million, it's important to try to get some broad perspective. How did it get to this? Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum was a guest on The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Aubrey Sampson from AM 1160, Hope for Your Life in Chicago. As American Christians, help us understand not only what is going on, but really kind of what we should be thinking about what's going on in the Ukraine right now. Yeah, you bet. So we're thinking right now in terms of a meta-narrative, something George Friedman and others have made uh, very popular. The idea that every country has a north on the compass. It has kind of a cultural DNA. And when you understand that, you can better interpret the past and predict the future. Vladimir Putin's meta-narrative years. He's made no bones about that. He has said that again and again. He has said the collapse of the USSR in 1991 was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. Now, bear in mind, 27 million Russians died in World War II, but still, he says, the collapse of the USSR is the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. And so now it appears that he is finally taking steps he's been warning for a long time he was going to take to rebuild the western edge of Russia, to build a buffer against Europe and against the invasions that have happened over the centuries into Russia, to start reclaiming land that used to be part of the USSR, and ultimately to rebuild Mother Russia itself. We need to understand that's what he's after here, and he will not be easily deterred. Mm -hmm. So as Christians, we need to be praying specifically for God to turn his heart 
praying for God to work in his life. Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle, kind of a miraculous move of God. Need to be praying for the Ukrainians, obviously, for God to protect them and empower them. I'm praying for pastors and Christian leaders in Ukraine to be used by God as catalysts for awakening in the midst of all this. And I'm praying that God will use us to cause Americans Mm -hmm. to put the world on our heart and pray for the world as Jesus is praying for the world right now. Mm. And Jim, I, I think you bring up a really interesting point. This is something Brian and I have been talking about on the show a lot, that we as Christians need to be actively engaged through what's happening in Ukraine through prayer. And I wonder for our listeners who might just be thinking, why does this matter to me? Like, why should I care about this? I, mm. I, I know that seems like an obvious question, but it's really not for everyone. Could you just unpack that? Like, why does this matter for the heart of God? and should matter for the heart of Christians? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Aubrey, and it's an entirely appropriate question. I understand that. So there's really two levels, I think, in which we can be thinking, first as Americans, and then second as believers. As Americans, we need to understand at the very least, this is a new Cold War. From what everybody that I'm reading is saying about this, we can expect cyber attacks, we can expect energy shortages, we can expect stock market disruptions at the very least as the result of this, as an ongoing new reality it would appear for us in America. It could well be this will move into NATO countries, and now you're talking about a shooting war. Because America and NATO are obligated to defend NATO states like Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania, others that could be invaded by Putin as he moves forward in this. Nuclear capacities are even on the table. Putin put them on the table this past Sunday. I'm not predicting that, of course, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we need to understand this is an existential threat to us. The world is smaller than it's ever been. We're more liable to cyber attack than ever been as the United States. So as Americans, we need to be aware that this could well affect us even more than it does now. Then as Christians, St. Augustine said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Jesus is right now grieving for what's happening there because his sisters and brothers there are under threat, even as though they were here in the States. If we had literal family in Ukraine, how would we be praying? That's how we should be praying with our spiritual family and all that's happening in these days. Yeah, that's really well put, Jim. And it has been really inspiring to see the Ukrainian people rise up. And it's mm-hmm. been led by, you know, their president, President Zelensky. Just what have you seen? Uh, what it has done to you as you've seen these past week, uh, particularly with the Ukrainian president, but also the Ukrainian people just kind of rising up and fighting this battle on their own? It's astounding to see what's happening here. It actually is. You're actually seeing Ukrainians from all over Europe returning back to Ukraine to join the fight. Mm. We're seeing Ukrainians in America trying to get back to join the fight, risking their lives. Many will give their lives for this. You're seeing Ukrainians standing up to Russian tanks. You're seeing a level of courage and of nobility here that absolutely should be inspiring the world. It's clearly shocking the Russians. In fact, we're hearing now from Russian soldiers that are back riding back to their family saying, we were told they would welcome us as liberators. We were told they would want us to be here. And now they're dying in front of our tanks. And this is horrific. And so the Russian soldiers are even starting to see this and be moved by the courage of the Ukrainian people. It is a powerful thing to, you know, be watching from afar, certainly. I know, um, Jim, some of the questions that I'm getting asked, you might be too, is really the question of nuclear weapons. And I know people are are obviously very afraid that Putin may or may not possibly use them. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's on three levels. Yeah, I'm not at all concerned that Putin will launch on the United States because of mutually assured destruction, because of the kind of deterrence capacities we have at that point and the ability absolutely to destroy each other's countries. 
I don't see a world in which he would intend to do that or would have a geopolitical reason to do that. But you could see limited nuclear kind of uh, weaponry brought to bear in that context, in that regime. We've not seen this done so far in American history or in world history, but you could see that possibility. You could certainly see him using other deterrents like biological weapons and mm. chemical weapons. That's been warned. In fact, uh, uh, the UK's British uh, foreign secretary has been warning that he will likely do that. He's used nuclear weapons in that sense to poison, nuclear poisoning against dissonance in the past. So we can mm -hmm. certainly see him escalating on that level. Certainly the deterrence that he intends to be in place here by threatening this is part of the current equation. Yeah, yeah. And Jim, this is so helpful. As we kind of start to wrap up here, I guess I'd like to take kind of back out a little bit people who are listening right now and all of this just grows in them a lot of fear. How do we as Christians, how, what's a word that you would share to somebody who just watches the news right now and feels just scared? Understandably so. We all, I think, should on some level feel that because one yeah. of the, I believe God redeems all that he allows. One of the ways I think God wants to redeem even what we're describing right now is to pull us out of self-sufficiency. I've often mm -hmm. said self-sufficiency is spiritual suicide. I didn't have to read that in a book. I've experienced that personally. <laughs> and we Americans, we have oceans on east and west, forests to the north, deserts to the south. We're not used to being invaded by countries. Right. And so we cannot understand perhaps what's happening here. If God could use this to cause American Christians to call on him on a deeper level of reliance, a deeper level of passion, a deeper level of dependence, then maybe we could be catalysts for the kind of spiritual awakening that we so desperately need in our country, in our culture, and around the world. And God can use this to birth a mighty prayer movement to his glory. Coming up. I tell you, the greatest help is we ask people to pray, uh, to pray for the people of Ukraine. Franklin Graham, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Before I spoke a word, you were singing Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. From wars and pandemics to poverty and natural disasters, Samaritan's Purse has a long track record of going where the needs are, even when it is dangerous. Earlier this week, the International Relief Group has started to deploy a field hospital to Ukraine. Franklin Graham, the president of Samaritan's Purse, joined Kevin McCullough as the plans for Ukraine were starting to come together. From AM570, The Mission in New York City. I tell you, the greatest help is we ask people to pray for the people of Ukraine. Uh, they're going through incredible suffering. And you think of the families that are fleeing for their lives and the, the dead, so the husbands can't go because if they're of military age, uh, that's uh, probably 19 to 60. They, uh, they're not permitted to leave the country. And so uh, you'll see young families being split. And it's just... We just ask people to pray. The Samaritan's Purse is, uh, we have people in Poland. We have them in Moldova. We also have them in uh, Romania. We also have people inside the Ukraine. In Moldova, we're doing some food distribution. Uh, we'll be doing some of that as well as in Poland. Uh, we're looking at the possibility of right now placing a, a field hospital 
Yeah. Uh, this would be set up to do surgery, and we're looking at possibly setting one of those up inside the Ukraine. With people getting out of the country as fast as they could, I've heard a few stories now of churches and church leaders who basically recognize that if war is coming, there's going to be a huge need, and it's the Christians that are there in the Ukraine that are choosing in large measure to stay behind and to help uh, as the uh, fighting continues. And just for a second, Franklin, give us your thoughts from the, the biblical perspective of of what God thinks of tyrants and people that make war and, and do things to innocence. I mean, is there? I'm sure there's a lot of people asking, is there a real justice? Um, what would you say to people that are asking that question today? Well, that's a hard one to answer because uh, we, we see throughout the Scripture war and destruction. Uh, but in spite of all of this, we want to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. We want the Ukrainian people to know that Christ died for their sins. We want the Ukrainian people to know uh, that God loves them and cares for them. Yeah, it's the best thing you can do. Well, Franklin, would you do us the honor of leading us in prayer for the people of Ukraine and for the world uh, as a whole right now? Absolutely. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you protect the people of the Ukraine, that you put your loving arms around them, you bring comfort to those families and to those that are suffering right now as we speak. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. And we thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to take our sins and die on a cross. And thank you for raising your Son to life. And we know that if we repent of our sins and turn to faith to your Son, Jesus Christ, you'll hear our prayers and you'll forgive our sins. And, Father, we pray this for the Ukrainian people more than anything else, that you'll just comfort them, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Prayer is a good place for us to close. Please continue to intercede for the people of Ukraine, for the church in Ukraine, and pray that God could somehow bring beauty out of ashes in this war-torn nation. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Schumann and producers Charlie Richards and David Pushan and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. But it flew away from a reach, so she ran away in a sleep.